Let's pray. And it's our prayer, Heavenly Father, that every thought of our minds, every longing of our hearts would be brought to Jesus Christ and brought into captivity to his obedience, to his lordship, as we turn to his word now. Please speak to us, uh, convince us, and challenge us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting a a new series in the evening services tonight, looking at common objections people have about the Christian faith. Um, And I suppose I've got two aims in view to help anyone who asks these questions themselves, if they wonder themselves about the common objections we're going to be thinking about. Let me list some of them, if you haven't uh, noticed what they are. Actually, publicize them much. Is the Christian faith a psychological crutch tonight? Uh, can we trust the Bible? Isn't Christianity sexually repressive? Um, what about suffering and a God of love? Isn't Christianity arrogant and bigoted and intolerant? Didn't the church invent the Christian faith? Um, perhaps you've got those questions. Maybe there are other questions you've got that are a problem. Those are common ones that people ask, and I'm happy to actually at this stage take other suggestions from people if you want to say, hang on, those aren't particularly the questions I'm facing. We've got other ones. Um, I'm hoping that we'll be able to invite people to those talks as they unfold during the course of the series, Uh, invite friends who have those questions. Um, Maybe they're your questions. I say I want to help anybody who's asking those questions or facing other people that ask them. I want to help us answer those questions for others as well, just to, to give us a bit of a crash course in handling those common objections. Um, so see if you can use some of the things we consider week by week to put the ideas in your own words and help friends who have those objections or questions. Uh, I haven't cleared this with Christopher, who plans the evening services, but I'm hoping that we can give people the chance to ask questions in the services, or by mobile phone if you want to do it that way, uh, which we sometimes do, or fill in comment cards. And I think Sarah helpfully bought a scrap of blank paper that you could even fill in during the sermon tonight. We won't have a question time because I've given my full allocation of time to to preaching, but you can shelve a question for next week if you want and put it in the box at the back. As I said, we start tonight with the question, isn't Christianity just a psychological crutch? And that question comes in various guises. Uh, it's a crutch for the weak, says someone. Or maybe they've got in mind the name of that book by Richard Dawkins from a few years back, The God Delusion. The whole thing is just delusional wish fulfillment. Maybe for others it has a slightly older and slightly more intellectual pedigree. It was popularized, I think, originally by Karl Marx. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world. It is the opium of the people, wrote Marx in 1843. I wonder if he had any sense that he would be quoting that phrase so regularly more than 150 years later, or misquoting him as saying the opiate of the people. Apparently, I'm not an expert in this, apparently what Marx originally meant was probably more of an economic statement than we realize, So I doubt that today anybody 
Well, most many of us take that statement as he originally intended it. I think most people tend to put a slightly different spin on it and say religion is the opiate of the masses, and what they mean by that is that all religious experience can be traced to humanity's need for a god. So we want some supreme being to care for us, and therefore we create an image in our mind and then worship the mental projection. But this supposed spiritual being lacks any objective reality. This is going to declare my sort of movie here. I like Tom Hanks, and I remember that film Castaway. If you've seen it, you might remember Tom Hanks gets washed up on a desert island, uh, a film that is enough to put you off flying for life. Um, And dentistry, if you can remember those horrific scenes, he has to cope with bad teeth while he's alone on the island. It is no Robinson Crusoe-Idle. It's harsh, it's desperate, it's dangerous. And Hanks has no human or even animal contact. So what does he do in that situation? Well, he paints a face on a volleyball, which he finds in a parcel on the crashed plane. And he calls that volleyball face Wilson. And for years, Wilson is the only company he has. He talks to him, he plots and plans with him. He even gets angry with him. So sort of an imaginary friend in the form of a face on a volleyball, and that pretty much keeps him sane, you could say. And so it might be claimed religion fulfills the same function for human beings. We hate the idea of being alone in the unfeeling immensity of the universe, as somebody put it. And therefore we drug ourselves into an unreal spiritual state, talking to a non-existent God, plotting and planning with him maybe even getting angry with him, anything, rather than facing the chilling consequences of our meaningless existence. Religion is the opiate of the masses. So those are the sort of complex of ideas that people might have behind this idea of faith being a psychological crutch. I actually want to start by turning the comments on its head and saying to begin with that atheism is actually the opiate of the masses or at any rate it has been, for rather too long. See, it's very tempting to say that Christians dream up their God through wish fulfillment. They find the idea of a father figure to care for them comforting, so hey presto, they end up believing it. Tempting to say that, but of course you could just as easily accuse atheists of something similar. Psychologically, they like the idea of being an independent, self-determining agent, So what do you know? They conveniently conclude that God doesn't exist. I found an example of that in a a rare moment of biographical confession by a well-known humanist of former years, Aldous Huxley, in his book Ends and Means. This is what he said. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, he says, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. So that's an example. You see there how wish fulfillment led in that case to his atheistic philosophy of meaninglessness. It suited him better that there was no God. Perfectly possible, you see, for atheism to be an opiate.
Well, what about Christianity? Will the charge stick that Christianity is a psychological crutch or an opiate for the masses? And I want to answer no for two reasons. For a start, the Christian message is rooted in history. And we had that reading from 1 Corinthians 15, one of the very earliest accounts of the Christian message. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, he says in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then uh, to the twelve, he goes on to speak more about that. But you see that the historical roots of the Christian faith, listed in verse 3 and onwards, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And you've got four verbs there, died and was buried, was raised and appeared. And they really form two couplets. Sorry to get technical and grammatical with you. Jesus died and the doctor's certificate of his death, he was buried. Then Jesus rose, and the warranty of that, the unmistakable evidence of that resurrection, he was seen, he appeared. And I don't think we can miss the force of how the apostle writes there. He presents the focal events of Christianity, Jesus' death and resurrection, as belonging to the realm of historical fact, Uh, Notice the events are datable. He rose on the third day. Notice, too, that the way he speaks of the resurrection is unashamedly physical. It was the same body that had been crucified and buried, which was then raised and seen. So he isn't teaching about Jesus simply living on in the hearts of the disciples. And therefore, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection that we celebrated last Easter day, last week, uh, just on Sunday, that can't be confined to the realm of subjective religious experience or not confined solely to it. So we can't sort of produce that line that it's true for the Christian, maybe, but it's not true for anybody else. That's the way people talk. As soon as the Christian message takes its stand on history, on what God has done at a specific time, in a specific place, 2,000 years ago, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we've got to say, it's true for no one, or it's true for everyone. In which case, true for me, true for you, true for us all. And do you see, therefore, how that argues against the idea that Christianity is just a feel-good delusion or an opiate for the masses? We're not just talking about a religious experience which makes Christians feel good, Although, to know God personally through Jesus Christ often does feel good, it is a subjective experience, but it is one which is rooted in objective historical facts. Let me try and illustrate by contrast. Suppose somebody wandered into church this evening with a fried egg dangling from their left ear, and they said to me, Simon, this fried egg thing, it really is the business. I love it. I get joy, peace, satisfaction, and purpose in life 
from having a fried egg dangling from my left ear. It's fantastic. This fried egg really is it. What do I say to that person? Well, I suppose in the final analysis, I can't really argue with their experience. But we can investigate their experience by asking one or two crucial questions. How do you know that it's the fried egg that's giving you this satisfaction and peace, not some sort of auto-hypnosis? Has anybody else had the same benefits out of a fried egg? To what objective fact is the experience tied? Now, Christianity differs from auto-hypnosis and wish fulfillments and other psychological phenomena in that the Christian's subjective experience is tied to an objective historical fact, namely the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So the reason to be a Christian isn't only because it might feel good, but because it's historically true. In fact, in many ways, I would want to argue that the non-Christian is the one who risks living in an unreal world. And I don't mean to be offensive by that, but you could say, as I've implied about atheism, you could actually say that agnosticism, which is perhaps a more popular option nowadays, you could say that that is an opiate for the masses, as well as atheism. It sounds, doesn't it, it sounds intellectually humble, to shrug your shoulders and say, well, we can never really know, can we? But too often that's simply a matter of burying one's head in the sand and hiding from historical reality. And you go back to the, uh, the resurrection for a moment. You could, in your own time, look more at the verses that were read to us just for the way Paul speaks there. But the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is compelling. The tomb was empty and nobody was subsequently able to produce the body because there was no dead body to produce. Jesus was seen, and those appearances were to many people over many days. And furthermore, the church was born. This is what you believed, he says. The growth of the Christian movement really makes no sense unless Jesus was raised. Now, if you're used to following scientific method then you can't really replace the resurrection account with agnosticism. Scientific method is that you can only replace a theory by offering a more plausible explanation of the facts, not with no explanation at all. So if a person is not going to accept the truth of the resurrection, if that's true of somebody here, and they don't want to become a Christian, the onus of proof is on them. You've actually got to produce another hypothesis and demonstrate that the Christian hypothesis that Jesus was raised from the dead is actually less good than your one. You can't just say, I don't know. You can only remove one explanation by actually replacing it with a better one. And I want to challenge people when I have the opportunity to try and do that. Certainly, Anybody who's investigating the Christian faith needs to focus their thinking on this, whether it's true historically. That's where to look, because Christianity is open to historical investigation. It's rooted in history, as Paul made clear. Now, there's a second problem, it seems to me, with the claim that Christianity is just a psychological crutch or the opiate of the masses, and it's this. It offers... A thoroughgoing rescue 
not just a short-term relief. And we could show this from any number of places. But I just want to unpack a phrase in that same passage from 1 Corinthians 15, a tiny little phrase in verse 3, where Paul says that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that's a, a crucial phrase, which takes us right to the heart of the Christian message. That little word, sins, may be a small word, but it poses a, a big problem for all of us. And I say that not because everybody is painted by the Bible in all the same colors as if we were all as bad as each other with no distinctions morally. It's just that at rock bottom, we are all naturally rebels against the rightful rule of God. And that would be true, according to the Bible, whether we were a terrorist or actually universally looked up to as a pillar of the community. As if we were thought of as somebody who's basically hardworking, conscientious, good to have around. Sins, what I do in in disobedience to God, are evidence of underlying sin, what I am. And that unites us all. My whole attitude of life, by nature, as I am, is somebody who wants to live on my own as my own boss uh, and as such independently from God. And the result of that is that sins must be punished by God because he really is in charge in his world. So the good news really is good news, because it says that it is possible for sins to be forgiven. Because, as our Bible verse puts it, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. Now Paul tells us that it was Jesus' death which dealt with sin. And I suppose if we were to ask him, what that barbaric death on Good Friday has got to do with human rebellion. Maybe he'd, he'd emphasize his words. It's hard to do that with a letter, isn't it? Maybe he'd emphasize certain words in that little phrase. Christ died for our sins. In other words, God was treating Jesus, who never rebelled against him, as we deserve to be treated, so that the punishment that should be ours would be settled by him, in advance, in full. I want to illustrate what happened with a visual aid, which I know I've used here before, uh, but it makes it so clear for me. Um, The verse says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And maybe it may be that one of the Old Testament Scriptures Paul had in mind was one that Jesus often seems to have had in mind, Isaiah 53, verse 6. That verse refers to God's suffering servant. It's a prediction perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ centuries later. It says this, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now if you imagine that this hand represents my life, and imagine that God is up there in heaven, I was made for an open friendship with God. But Isaiah says that we have all sinned. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And as a result, there is this barrier between me and God. And I'm cut off from him. There's no way I can get through to God in heaven because of my sin. Now imagine that this hand represents Jesus. Well, he really did live on perfect terms with his heavenly father. There was no sin barrier in his case. 
But how does that verse in Isaiah continue? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or wrongdoing of us all. When did that happen? Answer, when Jesus died on the cross. So it was as if he had done all the things, the evil things that I've ever done. As if his lips had said the mean things I've said. As if his mind had thought the proud, godless thoughts that pass through my mind. And so on. And he bore the punishment I deserve. And he did it, the Bible says, out of the most amazing love for me. With what results? Well, you've seen. With the result that now I'm free to be in a right relationship with God once again. Without the cross, I would be separated from God forever. With it, my sin can never separate me from God again. Now, it seems to me we can't simply dismiss that message as an opiate for the masses. I know people try to. The argument sometimes goes, as I've said, that Christianity is a crutch for the weak. And you usually find that people that talk that way, um, people that speak disparagingly about crutches, are young, fit, and healthy. I wonder if they'd be quite so rude about crutches if they had fractured a leg. But what this aspect of the Christian message teaches us is that actually you and I have suffered a fracture which is far more serious than ever a broken leg could be. Because of our sin, we all have a fractured relationship with God. We're cut off from him. And no way can we sort that out. If it's not mended, that's a fracture with terrible, eternal consequences. To say that Christianity is an opiate for the masses implies that it's a short-term fix. And I think a lot of people try to cope with the problems of life in that sort of way. They look for something to dull the pain a bit. There are lots of ways we can do it. The pleasure opiate, where I try to have a good time, maybe with a, a luxury lifestyle or by abusing alcohol or whatever. The performance opiate where I try to convince myself that I matter, maybe by doing well in my career or family life, or the popularity opiate, where I'm desperate to feel valued by lots of people or by one special individual. So in a world where life is tough, there are lots of coping mechanisms and crutches we turn to. The real question is, are they adequate crutches? See, the human condition, according to Christianity, is far more serious than we might think. Left to ourselves, we're irreparably cut off from God. And Christianity's solution is far more wonderful. God loves us so much that he entered our world, he took the punishment we deserved, and provided forgiveness. That's not just a a crutch or an opiate. It's a thoroughgoing rescue compared with our rather feeble coping mechanisms. But of course, nothing less will do. Let me conclude and sum up. God can't be dismissed as a delusion. and Specifically, Christianity can't rightly be dismissed as an opiate for the masses or a psychological crutch. Not with the message of Easter before us. Because that message is founded on historical truth 
and it offers a rescue from sin and judgment, not just a sticking plaster solution to life's difficulties. So thank God for that message, if you're a Christian. It's a message of hope in a world that lives in the shadow of death. And you have that hope if you trust Christ. So thank God for it. And if people are not yet Christians, the question I want to ask is whether you can face up to the charge that atheism or agnosticism might easily be a delusion, an opiate, to save you from facing reality. Take care that the crutches that you turn to, or your friends turn to, don't fool you or them into thinking that life without Jesus is fine, when it simply isn't. Let's pray together. We pray for the wonder of the good news to lift our spirits afresh, Heavenly Father. Thank you this evening for that wonderful truth that at the first Easter Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, and that he was seen, his resurrection life witnessed by people. We thank you for the scriptures that spell all those things out to us, that they're not our ideas, but that you have made them known over the centuries to us. And we pray that we'd be confident, assured, and joyful in believing those great events and taking them to heart for ourselves that we know your power to mend our relationship with you, be confident in knowing you, and confident, therefore, in speaking boldly about you to others. We pray it, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.